Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have my second guest from a company called Recursion Co. The website is recursionco.com. I have Lee Chang. She's the chief executive officer. I'm going to talk about uh, how they're using big data to analyze uh, the mortgage and the housing market. Lee, thanks for coming. Thank you, Richard. I'm glad to be here. So tell me a little bit about your background and what how did you uh, come to uh, you know to work for or found uh, Recursion Co? So in 97, I went to Chicago for graduate school. After two years, I got two master's degrees, one in urban planning and the other one is in mathematics and the computer science. And I realized computer science is a lot easier to help me finding a job. So I started to work for a company called Morningstar. When I was working there, I found the work there is not challenging enough. I still thirsty for interesting things. So I enrolled in a PhD program back where the, the school I attended. After five years, I got my PhD degree in mathematics uh, while I was working full time. So in 2004, after I got my PhD degree, I was hired by hedge fund Citadel. I worked as a financial engineer. That's the first time I worked in mortgage space. Since then, I have always worked in mortgage space. That's how I started uh, this business because I've gained a lot of experience in that area. So what, what fascinates you about the mortgage industry? What are you trying to model? In 2015, after I worked many years in mortgage industry, I quit my job because I reached the bamboo ceiling. And then I started this company at that time there's one biggest challenge is the size of the mortgage data is too big for most of the companies to handle. So big data is a very hot topic at that time. I always felt the Wall Street companies are not taking full advantage of all the advanced technology developed in the Silicon Valley. I felt all the solutions I have known, they're not good solutions. It's very costly and very clumsy and it takes a lot of a team to work on different components. I found out that I have this special ability to put together very complicated things together. In 2008, the previous employer I worked for, Bear Stearns, went down. I was hired by hedge fund manager, John Paulson. So he, he made tens of billions of dollars in the financial markets by shorting the mortgage market. And I was able to show them I could single-handed create the analytics of all agency mortgages, non-agency mortgage space. And they were very impressed about that. I also felt there's something special about me and I can make something affordable, which is very expensive, but I can make it affordable to a broader audience. I call it data democratization. And a very 
big data set is perfect for me to work on. So um, what are you trying to model at Recursion Co. in regards to the housing market? Are you trying to predict, you know, if uh, interest rates are going to affect it negatively or like what, you know, what are you specifically trying to figure out? Actually, we don't predict anything. We realize just the facts are actually very difficult to, to get. People try to model many things, but they use very dirty data and they use very rough input. They put it into their model and they get garbage out. We found out that just by cleaning up the data and being able to produce reasonable statistics for people to understand what's going on in the market is there's enough work for us. And we let our clients create their model, but now they're using our data more reasonable, meaningful, and totally clean. They can get their model and much better to perform a lot better. So you're providing what? Better raw data on various aspects of housing, and then that's helping their model? That data is not raw data. You know, the raw data is like you have all this data collected from different sources, and they are not synchronized and not normalized. And just to look at them, you won't get any information out of it. And also, we arrange them in, in such a way and also normalize them. So different data from different data source will come all together and tell you uh, the whole story. For example, we collect company level data from mortgage data sets. This is something have never been done before. Previously, people just look at mortgage securities, the bonds that is trading in the market. People never take very close look at who originated the loan and who serviced the loan. They care when they think this particular servicer is going to prepay fast. We never look at the market from company's angle. We were able to put all the companies together, their servicing size, their book, and we can rank them. As a matter of fact, an equity docs is something people have never done before. They were able to match our numbers to the company's uh, 10Q report. But those numbers are provided by the companies as single numbers without any details. Plus, it's only once a quarter, we have all the details coming into the information pool every day. And a lot of times our data is one to four months earlier than the company report itself. So that will give the users an edge in terms of pricing their securities. So you have more data, but what does the provenance of the data do? Why does that help you if you know where it's coming from? We're just able to mine a lot of additional data out of the existing data set because it's so messy and so gigantic. People were not able to manipulate it. We put all the data into Amazon Cloud. So speed of query is very fast. We are able to do a lot of things easily than most of the people. And we can easily put additional information together that people can never discover before. Well, like what, what are some examples? What what have you found in data, you know, without revealing too much that was new, useful, different, you know, new patterns, new discoveries? What can you disclose? I can tell you uh, how our company survived. So in 2016, I officially started my company. And half a year into that, 
I was introduced to the government agency that regulates the whole mortgage market in the United States by the data vendor who provide the data to me. At that time, they were facing pressure from the Congress. There is a phenomenon called VA churning, which means a lot of the companies that is handling VA mortgages will deliberately refinance the mortgages again and again. In this process, the companies make a lot of money because every time they do a refinance, it's like buying something worth $105 for only $100. The faster they do it, the more money they make. But it's the investors who are suffering and also the mortgage borrowers, the veterans are suffering. So uh, it is terrible. So the Congress asked this agent to, to find out what's going on and take action to stop this. Nobody could provide prepayment speed at company level. Everybody is looking at individual bonds. They can calculate the bonds uh, prepayment speed, but every bond is backed by many, many loans. And each of these loans will have a company that is doing the servicing. Nobody can separate them. I went and I did a demo. They immediately decided they are gonna work with me. Starting um, from June of 2016, I started to provide reports to them. In 2017, they officially become my client and use my data to monitor the issuers. And uh, in 2018, we develop an algorithm together and we actually screen out the outliers and penalize them. So this cracked down the whole bad doing. I'm very proud of uh, being part of the battle. So, I mean, so you're saying, you were saying earlier, if someone refinances a mortgage multiple times and people buy that, it's buying a damaged product, it's buying a devalued product. Like what's the, what's the issue with it? I know for the homeowner, they're paying money in the hopes that the lower payments will, you know, bring them a, a net profit, you know, what a return on investment after X number of years. But what about for the mortgage companies that hold refinances? Why does that impact them badly? The mortgage companies, uh, they originate a loan and they only pay $100 for 100 face value. And then they sell this piece of mortgage to the investors in the secondary market for 105 because, as you know, the interest rate, rate has been very low in the past couple of years. Everybody would like to hold a bond that will pay 4% coupon. And if you save your money into the bank, you'll probably get zero. Hopefully they don't charge you a fee for it. And then once you get this bond, you paid 105 for this bond, hoping to collect the interest for the next, say, 10 years. And three months after, this mortgage company come back to you and said, I want this bond back because the borrower refinanced. I pay you $100 for this bond I sold to you at 105. So... It's not the bond it is bad. It's the way refinance actually make the investors lose money. That is the, the story. But investors, you think, would know this. Why wouldn't they have provisions in the bond that there's a, um, you know, an early buyback penalty or something so they don't lose money? It doesn't make sense. That's a very good observation. Yes, if the investors... Uh, foresee this is going to happen, they will probably not willing to pay 105 for that bond. But, um, you know, there's always a beginning of it, right? So they're doing it 
more more and more frequently, and then it's not what they expected, and then they lost money. They complained to the congress congressman, and also there's never a prepayment penalty in agency mortgage space. So for resident residential mortgage, very rarely there is any prepayment penalty built in. That's just a matter of a fact that this is how the market is. So they do have the right. So the, it is more for the, um, if it is more the option of the homeowners. So the homeowners can decide when they want to refinance their home. If they see the interest rate is, is lower and the mortgage rate is lower, they will refinance their mortgage. However, a lot of times this is not initiated by themselves. It's the services, the company that is handling the situation. They will call these people and then try to get them to refinance a lot of times, not necessarily at their interest. For example, they could easily tell the borrower, you will get a lower monthly payment. How do you get a lower monthly payment? You can get a lower interest rate. Also, you can extend the mortgage term if you can change a 30-year mortgage into a 40-year mortgage, then you get a lower mortgage payment every month, but it's not necessarily good for you because you will be in debt for longer terms. These companies uh, sometimes do that, so they will make the homeowner refinance, not necessarily good for them, but also at the cost of the investors because uh, they will repurchase the loan back from the investors. I guess it's uh, everyone's speculating. When someone refinances, they're speculating that, um, you know, if they can get into a fixed rate, that they'll be in the house long enough and the value will stay where it is at least or go up. And then the person that buys the refinanced mortgage at a premium is speculating as well. Right. So there are, this market is not symmetrical in terms of knowledge and expertise. And the mortgage companies are um, able to get people in doing things that is the, for the best interest for them. So that's what we, that's how it happened uh, in 2016. And also after that 2017, 2018, they are always trying to find ways to make as much money for themselves. And the regulators sometimes need to keep an eye on them so that they don't rip off other people. It, it could be, there could be a gray area over there. So, but what we provide is a tool for the policeman to quantify the speed. You can think as a speed meter. So the policeman will use the speed meter to gauge. So who is uh, speeding? And then he will talk to the guy who is speeding and it, maybe there's a validated reason. Then they need to provide a proof for that. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So with, with the current situation, you know, a ton of, I mean, trillions have been issued by the federal government. I would think it would have to lead to inflation at some point, And that would hurt, you know, the stock market. Right now, there's like this huge refinance boom. Rates are unbelievably low. What's your prognostication over the next six months and then over the next year? on uh, what's going to happen with interest rates and, you know, the mortgage industry? You have a very good question because uh, I worked for the hedge fund manager, John Paulson, when I was there starting in 2008. 
That is when the first global financial crisis happened and there was a gigantic quantitative easing and just the Fed pumped trillions of dollars into this market. He had the view that inflation will be picking up and will go out of control and see what happened, nothing. Rates just keep on going down and down and down and said this never go up any higher than 2007 level. And it will be hard to get any anywhere close to that level anytime soon. People say, um, so why it's not happening? Why inflation is not happening? I think the, the problem is um, there is not enough demand to absorb all the things the society can produce. There is an oversupply of everything. So we can, there are too much food, too much clothes, too much of everything. So I don't see inflation is going to happen, not in the next six or one year. I don't see inflation is going to happen, you know, in even five years of term, because uh, we're just uh, as a group too productive. We produce too many things. And some of the things could be useless. And we have to get people to buy those things to save, to create jobs and to save people from not having enough income. So I don't think inflation is going to be a concern for a while. Well, I guess if there weren't enough things, um, do you think then, so, so you're saying there's too much abundance for people to spend enough to cause inflation? Is that what you mean? Absolutely. So even people have a lot of money because uh, there, is, there isn't a shortage of products. So inflation is only going to happen. So there are 10 things, but people want to buy 20. So price will go up. There are 10 things. People only want to buy eight. So inflation is not going to happen. People will have a lot of money. And uh, that's why stock market can go up because they can go go ahead and buy stock. There's, they can always push the stock market higher. They can also push um, maybe housing market. How, uh, so housing price hasn't been decreasing as uh, people originally thought due to the pandemic. It's actually increasing recently. But well, is it increasing everywhere or in states where people are fleeing? New York, California, you know, it uh, seems like a lot of people are fleeing. So, I mean, are prices increasing there or no? Or they're dec- decreasing or is it increasing just in areas where people are, are migrating to? Definitely. It's not the same everywhere. We definitely see uh, in New York City, uh, Manhattan, the home price already dropped. Um, I don't know by percentage, maybe 10%. But in suburban area, so I live on, on Long Island, my neighbor just uh, sold his house and uh, in no time. So people, uh, a lot of people who had the money, who wanted to buy a home, uh, a house, uh, they decided they don't want it in the city anymore. They want it being in suburb. I think it's the same for all the metropolitan areas. The big cities were, is very crowded. It used to be very crowded. Now, fewer people want to stay there and uh, they all want to go to a suburban area where they can be safe. I definitely know a couple of cases. People I know, they moved from New York to South Carolina and also people moved from 
California, say Los Angeles, go to Nevada somewhere, some somewhere in, in nowhere. You don't even know. But now if you have a computer in front of you, you have a Wi-Fi, you have the connection to the whole world. The whole the whole world is just changed. And it's a permanent shift. I don't see um, it will get back to the norm pre-pandemic. Well, okay. Um, so in regards to the housing market, right now there's a surge. People are moving and reshuffling. You know, I see like a, a great change there. What do you see ahead for the housing market over the next year? The housing market is uh, going to be fine because uh, it doesn't matter what happened in this world. Everybody need a shelter. Everybody need to live somewhere. And also the government is doing whatever they can to make sure that happens. Nobody leave there. Nobody has to give up their home because they don't have enough income. The, the huge quantity of easing, a lot of them will go to the housing market. What really concerns me is the commercial real estate because people, so there are four different property types, residential, then office, hotel, shopping mall. So look at the rest of the three. Shopping mall, very few people go out shopping physically to the, these days. Hotels, people are afraid of traveling and offices. All the people I have known they have been into the office for more than half a year. I only heard very rare cases that they show up in their office, but only like once a week. So those three sectors are also very big um, in financial markets. And uh, the mortgages, commercial mortgages are also securitized into CMBS. And uh, a lot of the banks hold those assets those are troubled assets. I will be, and uh, I heard the delinquency rate of those mortgages that are pretty high. It will take some time to figure out how the banks will deal with these new toxic assets, given the fact that those properties are not already, are not creating enough income. Uh, I would say a lot of them will be seriously in trouble and a lot of foreclosure will go on and the demand shift is going to be permanent. It will probably never go back to the level pre-pandemic. Residential is a totally different story. People still need to live in a house. It's just a where. I guess of the um, the commercial sector, the retail stores would be most affected and not the other types of real estate, like industrial manufacturing, that type of thing. It's mainly uh, retail and also office and a hotel. Manufacturer, manufactured, you mean manufactured a house? So that's still considered a residential. So no, no, I mean like manufacturing buildings. I mean like a, you know a, a factory oh, versus a, a retail oh, store, you know, or like an industrial right, place right, where right. you cut cut metal or something. Oh, absolutely. So the industrial buildings will still be needed, but shopping, but selling those things will go. Very virtual, so which means those um, retail stores will no longer be needed. A lot of them will no longer be needed. Well, very good, Lee. So, what's what's the best way? I mean, like, what kind of customers are you looking for, and what's the best way for people to find you? The customers I'm looking for are the smaller companies in mortgage space. We at this moment are approaching 
um, mortgage, those mortgage companies um, that is uh, originating mortgage loans, residential mortgage loans, or servicing residential mortgage loans, they are uh, the ones that are that do not have uh, a lot of human resources or technology in house, and we can provide them our tools so that they can immediately function as if they have a big team running behind them. They are more, um, they are accepting our service a lot better than the bigger firms because in bigger firms, they tend to have a big team that is doing the same thing as what we do, even not very efficient. They, they think we are taking their jobs, so they don't like us. Uh, the smaller companies welcome us. So what we do is uh, we, we want to provide service to the smaller companies so they can gain an edge in a competition. So we call it data democratization because um, we bring the information to a broader audience, even people who use not to be able to afford such information, they get it first and they will excel. And eventually, I hope the bigger companies will follow the suit. These days, we are doing marketing mainly on LinkedIn. We have a blog. We push out very interesting information on our blog. And me and my partner share on LinkedIn. We get the followers following our blogs every week. So people hear our name that way. Um, so we, if we find out someone is interested in our blog, they like it, they follow it, we will reach out and introduce ourselves and uh, the conversation will start from there. Okay, very good. Well, Lee, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You have a great day. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.